Last week we started a series about something that uh, we all deal with and none of us like. It's about pain and suffering. And we just kind of introed uh, this topic last week. And we, we didn't dig in too deeply, but we said, you know, we, we're just going to be real honest about this. It's challenging, right? We all, this is something that we all deal with. The world is filled with pain and suffering, right? That's the world that we live in. We live in a world filled with people trying to make sense of pain and suffering. We live in a world filled with people asking, where is God in this pain and suffering? Right, And so what we did last week is we kind of uh, opened up this topic is we looked at a passage in the book of James, James chapter 1. And I want to read it for us because I think it's worth our time just kind of setting the stage for where we're going to go here uh, this evening as well. So it's James chapter 1. We'll throw it up on the screen. This is what James writes. It's a little crazy. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So last week we really dug into that. And we started, we said, you you notice that he says, whenever, whenever you face trials of many kind. And so we pulled from that, we said, pain and suffering are just a part of life, right? Every single one of us, pain and suffering is a part of life. It's inevitable. It's not if we're going to experience pain and suffering. It's when we experience pain and suffering. And how much pain and suffering are we going to experience? Every one of, this, uh, every one of us in this room are either presently experiencing pain or suffering or will in the future. Like that's the common denominator among humanity. And so we looked uh, at that word whenever, and then we said pain and suffering are like unpredictable for us, right? Like we can't plan it. We can't schedule it. It comes when it comes. All we could do is face it, right? And we can face it with courage. We could face it with God, and we can face it with each other. And we said, all pain and suffering is not the same. Like, it's not all the same. There's lots of different types of pain. There's lots of different sources of suffering. And we said, one one explanation doesn't fit every situation, right? There's no one explanation for pain and suffering that just broadly applies to every situation people are in. And so many times, like, if we're honest, we say, I just admit, I have no explanation for why this pain and suffering is happening. And we shouldn't pretend that we do. Sometimes we can think we're being helpful with people that are struggling, like they're experiencing loss, for example. And we go, well, maybe your loss is going to lead to dot, dot, dot. It's not helpful when we try to explain it. Many times it's unexplainable to us. And so what we concluded last week was that as terrible and uncomfortable and unwanted as pain and suffering could be, we can trust that God is producing something good through it. That's hard, but it's true. God is producing something good in my pain. He's teaching me things. He's, he's maturing me. Through my pain and suffering, he's giving me a fuller perspective. We looked at, kind of quickly looked at Hebrews chapter 12 last week. It says he's producing a harvest of righteousness and peace in me through my pain and suffering. My pain and suffering can actually cultivate a deeper intimacy with God if I allow it, right? And we've said, you know, lots of people, you go through pain and suffering. Some people, it pushes them away from God. Some people, it pulls us closer to God. And we said, it can, it can cultivate this deeper level of intimacy if we allow it to. And because of that, we could actually, as we experience it, as we walk through this, we could actually have a deep, heartfelt peace and joy 
as we go through it. Not happiness. Joy and happiness are different, right? It's not like I'm smiling all the time that I'm suffering. It's not what it is. But it's this deep, heartfelt peace and contentment, knowing that God is doing something through it. And then here's the thing. This is kind of how we ended last week. We said, okay, here's the thing. We got to be prepared for our pain and suffering. Because when you're in the middle of it, it feels like, like you don't know what's up from down. You don't know what's left to right. It feels like the world is careening out of control. And so we said, we got to be prepared. And there's some things about God that we need to know ahead of time, right? So that when we're in it, when we're experiencing those hard things, we cling to what we know, right? We cling to what we know during our pain and suffering. What do we know? God loves us. What do we know? He suffered for us. He chose to die for us. What do we know? He walks with us through our pain and suffering. Even my pain and suffering brings him pain and suffering, right? Because he loves me. And so we cling to that. So that's what we dug into last week. We kind of just introduced this topic. Tonight, I want to talk about a certain kind of suffering. I want to talk about a certain kind of pain, the kind that makes absolutely no sense, the kind of pain that's unexplainable, the kind of pain that's, that's inexplicable, the kind of pain that seems random many times and most times feels very, very unfair. We experience this kind of pain when we look around, you read the news, and you see these natural disasters going on, right? You see, you see hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, thousands of people dying for no reason, right? We see this kind of pain when you have this sudden illness and death, right? I was reading uh, an article on CNN this week about a family of eight, mom and dad and six kids. Did you guys read this? Mom and dad and six kids. Mom got a blood clot and died in her sleep. And within 48 hours, dad died of a heart attack. Within two days, they went from having healthy mom and dad to six kids without a mom and dad. How do we explain that? How about terrible accidents? I was reading another article about a kid in India, a 15-year-old kid in India, who he shouldn't have been doing this, but he was taking a selfie of himself with his dad's gun, and the gun accidentally went off and killed himself, taking a selfie. Like, how do, you, how do we explain that? How about school shootings? It's been a terrible trend of the 20th and 21st century, right? Paducah, Kentucky, Heath High School, three students killed while praying, praying. Littleton, Colorado, Columbine High School, 12 students, one teacher killed, 21 wounded before the guys killed themselves. Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary, 26 and 7-year-olds killed Six and seven-year-olds. My daughter's six and a half. Like, what do we do with that stuff, you know? Where, where's God in that stuff? How do I explain any of it? What is, what is God doing? Is he angry with us? You know, is he, is he judging us? Is that God's judgment? Is he punishing us for things that we've done wrong? Is he, is he even aware? Does he care? Well, tonight, I want to look into this. I just want to have a, a real honest, raw conversation about it. We don't have all the answers, I'll be the first to say. 
But I want to look into a passage in the Bible, actually a book in the Bible, with a guy who asked many of those same questions, and actually many more, because the pain and suffering that he experienced was extreme. And the guy's name is Job. So if you got your Bibles, I would love it, or phones or tablets or whatever, flip it open to Job chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a whole table full of them back here. If you raise your hand, one of our ushers will bring you a Bible uh, But Job chapter 1. This is kind of interesting. Job is generally considered the oldest book in the Bible. More than likely, this was the first book in the Bible that was written. So, which is interesting to me because you look at it. The first book that God wrote, the first book that God passed to humanity is about pain and suffering. It's age old, right? Isn't that interesting? It's actually about much more than just pain and suffering, which we'll get into here in a minute. But the book of Job is kind of a long book. It's 42 chapters long, 42 chapters long. But really, it's broken down into three parts. And we're going to kind of give a little bit, we're going to dig into each of those three parts. The first part and the last part a little bit more. The first part is chapters one and two, two short little chapters. The second part is big. It's 35 chapters long. It's verses uh, chapter three through 37, big bulk of it, right? And the last part of the last five chapters, 38 to 40, okay? So I want to give you, I want to kind of dig into this a little bit and give you a little bit of an overview of what's going on with Job here because I think there's so much that we can pull for our lives today. And so after we dig into this, I'm going to give you four things that I want you to just kind of hold on to as we look at Job and as we think about uh, unexplainable pain and suffering. So chapter one, this is kind of how it starts. We get a little uh, idea of who Job is. We get introduced to Job. So Job is this upright man. He's a man that loved and followed God. God says, I got nobody like him. Right? Job is this incredible guy. He was a family man. He had 10 kids, big family. He had a wife and 10 kids, big family. And he was also a very wealthy man. So he acquired a lot of stuff back then. So stuff back then looks like a bunch of animals, right? So he's got oxen, he's got cow, he's got sheep, camels, all of that sort of stuff. And he was this very, very well-respected man. So think of like, he's, he's kind of like the Bill Gates of his era, but think, I don't know, I've never met Bill Gates. Think of like the best Bill Gates that you could think of, a godly Bill Gates. That's kind of who Job was. And so we're introduced to him in the first few ch- uh, verses of chapter one. Then you get to chapter six and the scene changes. And it's really interesting. Satan, so all of a sudden we're, we're learning a little bit about who Job is. And then we're like transported to the courts of God, to the throne of God. And it says that Satan comes and presents himself to God. And God says, what have you been doing, Satan? He says, I don't know. Been roaming around here and there. And then God says to him, have you considered? God brings it up. He says, have you considered my servant Job? I got nobody else like him. So, so we're like, we get this little sneak peek into heaven, okay? And Satan presents himself to God. God says, what are you doing? He says, I've been roaming around. He says, have you thought about my servant Job? Right? And, and Satan says to him, he says, listen, Job, he, he only worships you. He only follows you because you bless him so much. You've given him so much. He's not really in love with you, God. He's in love with what you do for him. Right? And so God says, and he says to him, he says, if you take away all that he's got, he'll abandon you. He'll leave you. There's a guy named Tim Keller. We've been looking at the book that he wrote on pain and suffering. We introduced it last week. One of the things he says is this. He's kind of describing this scene. He says, Satan's saying quite simply that Job is in his relationship with God merely for the benefits. Good question to ask ourselves, right? He doesn't serve you and love you, Satan's arguing. He's only loving himself, serving himself, and using you to do it. You're just an instrument, a means to an end. 
I'll prove it to you and to this council. Make things unprofitable for him. Stop blessing him and you'll see. He'll drop you like a hot iron, right? That's kind of what's going on. Another guy, Philip Yancey, says it this way. He says, Satan scoffs that God, unworthy of love in himself, only attracts people like Job because they're bribed to follow him. If times ever get tough, Satan charges, such people will quickly abandon God. So Satan goes out. God says, how about Job? Satan goes out, and he afflicts Job. He attacks him, even though Job has done nothing wrong, right? And Job knows nothing about what just happened in these verses. He knows nothing about this conversation between God and Satan. And so you get to verse 13 of chapter 1, and you see that Job's kids are all at the oldest brother's house, and they're celebrating. They're having a party. They're having a good time. They're all together. Job and his wife are at home. Some messenger comes to him and says, Job, 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 listen, raiders came, and they attacked and they, they took all of your oxen, and they killed all of your servants. I'm the only one who survived. Imagine what Job's feeling, right? And as soon as he's finished saying that, another messenger comes in. He says, Job, 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 listen, fire came down from heaven and killed all of your sheep, every single one of them, and all of your shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped. I'm the only one who survived. Just as he finishes saying that, another messenger comes in. He says, Job, 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 another group of raiders came. They stole all your camels and they killed all of those servants. Just as he finished saying that, another messenger comes in. says, Job, a huge windstorm came and it took your brother's house and it knocked the uprights, the supports down and the roof came down on all of your family, all of your kids and killed them all. And I'm the only one who survived. Imagine. Talk about pain and suffering. And this is what Job says. This is what it says, uh, Job 1.20. At this, Job got up, he tore his robe and shaved his head. This is a sign back then, a cultural sign back then of agony, of mourning, right? They fell to the, then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the anguish, the torment he would have felt? And how does he respond? He worships. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Amazing guy, right? I mean, this is, this is the guy we're talking about. This is Job. You get to chapter 2. You go back to the scene, the heavenly scene. Satan presents himself to God one more time. Satan, where you been? I've been here and there. I've been around the earth, just kind of roaming the earth. God says, if you consider my servant Job, brings him up again. God brings him up. And then Satan suggests that he's only worshiping God because he still has his health. That's the only reason, God, that he's following you. It's the only reason he's worshiping you still, because you haven't let me take his health away. God says, very well. You can take his health. Don't kill him, though. But you can take his health. And so, literally, Satan afflicts Job from head to toe with these, these festering sores. I was reading a little bit about, like, what could it be? Talking about maybe they're like pussy boils. Ugh. And, he said, and it describes him sitting in ashes, right? A pile of ashes with shards of pottery, clay pottery, scraping his sores. These pussy boils. Imagine that. 
And then look at Job's wife. She's still around. It's just he and, he and her now. Look at her response. This is what she says. So I said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. It's crazy, right? So he goes from being like the wealthiest man on earth, godly, righteous, to having everything in his life taken away and then his health taken away. And then what happens next? He has these three friends. This is chapter 2, partway through chapter 2. He has these three friends, and they come and they sit with him. And when they get there, they could barely recognize him. Must have been just covered, emaciated, sickly, and barely even recognize him. And it says for the first seven days, they do good for a while. For the first seven days, they just sit with him, unable to sit. This is what it says. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Oh, this is the first section. This is the first chunk, chapters 1 and 2. Okay? Then we get the second part of the book of Job, chapters 3 through 37. And in there, in the next 35 chapters, Job and his friends talk. His friends' names are Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, and Elihu. 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 <laughs> so during his time, Job's searching for answers, and he finds none. He feels like he's innocent and attacked by God, right? I didn't do anything wrong. And he complains to God over and over and over again. And he complains to his friends over and over and over again. He struggles to understand why. Why is he in such agony? Why is he in such misery? And then Job's friends, after the seven days, they sit with him, they don't say anything. They just be with him for seven days. Then after the seven days, they start to talk one after another. And they say to him, Job, you must have done something wrong. Like you, mu- you, mu- you must have, you know, like, you're getting what you deserve, right? Only God, God only punishes evil people with suffering. What'd you do, Job? What kind of sin, what kind of secret sins are in your life? God always protects. God always blesses people that are good, people that are righteous. He always gives them good things. And Job's like, I haven't done anything wrong. I've done nothing I don't deserve any of this. And this goes on over and over again for the next 35 chapters. They weren't privileged to understand what we got a chance to read in the first two chapters here. Their understanding of pain and suffering was very narrow and very limited, unfortunately, for their friend Job. They assumed if you're experiencing pain and suffering, you're being punished by God. In fact, in chapter 23, Job calls for God to be put on trial. God, I wish I could put you on trial. This is what he says. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I'd state my case before him. I'd fill my mouth with arguments, I'd find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. If only God would show up, right? If only God would show up, if only he'd show himself, then I'd give him a talking to, right? Then I'd tell him what's going on. Over and over and over again in those 35 chapters, Joe says, if God would just show up, I'd show him how innocent I am. I'd show him how much I don't deserve this. I'd show him how unfair all of this is to me. I'd show him how wrong he's been in bringing this pain and misery and agony on me. If God would just show up. That's the second section. 
Then you get to the third section, chapters 38 to 42. And amazingly, as it, as it starts, right, the very beginning of chapter 38, God gives Job exactly what Job was asking for, a face-to-face rendezvous. This is what it says, Job 38, verse 1. Then, God, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. A a more literal translation of verse 2 there is, Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who's obscuring my plans? Who's darkening my counsel? Who's twisting my purposes? Who's questioning my wisdom, Job? Who is this? What are you doing? And God tells Job to brace himself like a man. Literally, it says, gird up your loins. Get ready for an unpleasant experience, Job. Why? Because I'm going to question you now, Job. Job's been questioning God. Why, 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 why? God, you're being unfair to me. I don't deserve any of this, right? Now God says, I'm going to question you, Job. And in your wisdom, you're going to answer me. And in your wisdom, you're going to inform me of why all this is happening. And then, instead of giving Job what he wants, what does Job want? He wants a reason, right? I want to know why. I want a reason for my pain and suffering. Instead of giving Job what he wants, God gives Job what he needs. Perspective. Guys, this is so important. God actually never answers Job's question as to why. Whole book. He never asks. He never answers it. He never gives Job what he wants. The answer to the question, why? But instead, he gives Job exactly what he needs, perspective. And so in chapters 38 and 39, God talks about his power. He talks about himself. In in the first part, he questions Job about the creation of the world. He says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? Where, Where were you when I made the seas? Where were you when I created the dawn? He questions him about the world above. He says, what's the way, what's the residence, the way to the residence of the light? Where, Job, where does the darkness live? How does grass sprout? Does rain have a father, Job? Where do we keep uh, snow and hail and frost? Where do they come from? Job, what about the stars and the constellations? Any questions about the animal kingdom? He says, who provides for the wild animals, Job? You know so much. Who provides for them? Who considers their birth? Who gives the ox strength and makes him obey man? Who, gives, who makes the ostrich fast? Who gives horses courage to run into battle? Job, who does all those things? You or me? And then in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 2, this is what God says. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Are you going to correct me, Job? Let him who accuses God answer him. Answer me, Job. Are you going to correct me now? This is what Job said. Job answered the Lord. Verse 4. He said, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice and I'll say no more. What's Job getting? Is Is he getting an answer for his pain and suffering? It's not what he's getting. He's getting perspective, right? 
he's getting a small glimpse of the God of the universe. And all of a sudden, his, his why question is so strong within him. Why am I experiencing all this? And he gets a glimpse of the God of the universe. And all of a sudden, his why question is not that important, right? Then look what God says next. Chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Again, he said, brace yourself like a man. I'll question you, and you're going to answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his, like mine? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in dust altogether. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. What's God doing? What's he doing here? He's showing Job how vast and huge and complex and powerful he is. And how comparatively simple and weak Job is. The small, finite, narrow perspective of Job compared to the all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal God of the universe. And what does it say Job can do? All he can do is go. He just covers his mouth, right? It reminds me of last weekend. Last weekend, we were, um, it was like a lazy Sunday afternoon. My wife, Marcia, had to work. So we're sitting in the, in the house. I turn the TV on. I'm like flipping through the channels like a typical guy, right? I'm just laying there, feet up, flipping through the channels. And my kids, Luke and Natalie, were there. Luke's nine, Natalie's six. And we're flipping through, and uh, The Matrix was on. You guys know that movie, The Matrix? And I was like, man. I was talking to Luke mostly. I'm like, man, I love this movie. Like, this is, I used to love this movie. Like, this is, a, this is a really cool movie. Like, the fight scenes in this movie, Luke, were amazing, right? And then Natalie's like, Dad, what's it about? She's six years old. Dad, what's it about? I'm like, oh boy. Like, how do you explain the Matrix to a six-year-old, right? I'm like, well, um, this guy named Neo, he takes a pill that allows him to realize that the world that he was actually living in wasn't real, it wasn't reality, but it's really a computer program or a matrix, and nothing that he had experienced before was real, and his actual physical body's like in this container of goo, and he's got a plug on the back of his head which plugs him into the matrix. That's what it's about. She's like... What? <laughs> I'm like, it's got a lot of good fight scenes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Guys, it's kind of like what God is showing Job here. It's kind of like what God's showing Job. The Bible says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Right? God is so huge. Like he's so big and vast and complex. And you and I in many ways are so simple. Our perspective is so narrow. Our purview is so narrow. So how does, how does Job respond to God? How does, it, how does the book end? Look at the very end of the, the last chapter, chapter 42. That's what it says. Then Job replied to the Lord... I know that, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? 
Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. He said, listen now, and I'll speak. I'll question you. You shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. How does Job respond? Oh, my. Oh, my. I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me things beyond me, beyond my comprehension. And then, God, you spoke. You showed yourself to me. I I had heard of you, but now I get a chance to see you and your splendor, your magnificence. And my perspective has been completely changed, right? How could I have been so audacious? How could I have been so, so foolishly confident? How could I have been so disrespectful? It says, I despise myself. Literally what it means there is I reject myself. I reject myself and I repent. I humbly apologize in dust and ashes. At first, Job is asking, why, 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 God? Why would you allow this to happen to me? How many times do we ask God that? I know I have many times. Why, God, are you allowing this pain to come? God never answers his why question. God answers the who question. Let me tell you who I am. So what do we pull from this? A few things. I got, I got four things here. Maybe if you're going to write things down tonight, this would be, these four things would be good things for you to write down. First thing is this. My pain doesn't always make sense. It just, it just doesn't. Job's friends tried to make sense of the pain and suffering that Job was experiencing. And the only conclusion that they could come to was, you must have done something wrong, Job. You must have sinned. You must have screwed up. And now God is punishing you for the things that you've done. You're reaping what you sowed, right? You're reaping what you got from a sinful life. And sometimes that's true. But sometimes it's not. And it's naive of us to think that suffering is always a result of our bad choices or the bad choices of others or God disciplining us. That's naive for us to say. Looking at the first two chapters, we can step back and go, okay, so that's not always why we deal with hard things, right? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes our limited perspective, our limited purview, we just have these limitations that disallow us from seeing the big picture that God sees, like a six-year-old trying to understand the matrix, right? That's the first thing. My pain doesn't always make sense. Here's the second thing. My pain doesn't always mean that God is disappointed with me or against me. So important, guys. Sometimes we can think that our pain and suffering is a result of our bad choices, when it's like, I didn't do anything. Job didn't do anything, right? We have the benefit of seeing behind the curtain, seeing, seeing chapters one and two here. Was God mad at Job? No. God wasn't mad at him. Actually, he was pleased with him. God was proud of him. Sometimes we feel like God is upset with us, like God is punishing us, that he's bringing us pain when he's doing no such thing. Many times, God can use pain and suffering for the opposite reasons, not to punish us, but to pull us closer to him, right? To pull us into deeper intimacy with him. Next week, we're actually going to look at how sometimes our pain is a result of our choices, 
Our suffering is a result of our choices. But it's naive for us to say that it's always that way. And that I'm experiencing these hard things because God is against me. He's disappointed with me. Third thing. This is just, just being honest. Some pain never gets explained. Some pain just... There's no explanation for it. Sometimes, many times, I don't get the answers that I'm looking for when I ask the question, why? God never answers Job, Job's question there. Never. Not in there. At least not on this side of eternity do we receive answers. I don't know, maybe one day. Maybe one day when we're in heaven with God, and maybe our minds will be opened in a different way and we'll be able to understand. But for right now, many times, pain doesn't get explained. I wish it were different, just to be honest with you. The last thing, fourth thing, and, and I think most importantly, my pain reveals my faith. Do I really trust the God who loves me? My pain reveals my faith. Do I really trust the God who loves me? Listen to what Philip Yancey says. He said, regardless of what Job thinks, God is not on trial in this book. Job is on trial. The point of the book is not suffering. Where is God when it hurts? The prologue dealt with that issue. The first two chapters dealt with that issue. The point is faith. Where is Job when it hurts? How is he responding? How am I responding? Think about your own life. You're experiencing pain. You're experiencing hurt. How do you respond in that? I was thinking a lot about this this week. Like, why, why does God put Job in the Bible? Like, what's his purpose for that? Why would that be the very first book of the Bible written? What's God's purpose in that? Is it to teach us about unexplainable pain and suffering that we're going to experience? I, I think that's some of the reason. But more than that, I think God put Job in the Bible to teach us what real faith is. Please, please hear this. This is so important. I think God put Job in the Bible to teach us what real faith is. Faith in a good God who absolutely adores us even when our circumstances are bad. Even when our circumstances are hard. To help us have faith in him and his love for us no matter what. Not when we're, when we're not blessed, right? When, when things aren't going well. Job's actually much less about us struggling and much more about how we can trust the one when we're struggling, when answers are hard to find. I think that's true. I think it's much less about, oh, the, the toil of life, pain and suffering, it's so hard. It's, that's reality. Right? It's part of it. And I think it's much more about what do we do in it? And are we clinging to the one who's trustworthy? Are we clinging to the one who's good? Are we clinging to the one who loves us? You, know, you, you turn on the TV and you listen to some of the TV preachers and they say over and over again that God's greatest desire for us is to be healthy and wealthy. God's greatest desire for you is to be healthy, to not have a physical ailment in the world and to have all comfort and money and all of that. Really? Is that, is that true? Is that, what, is that what Christianity is? It doesn't feel that way many times. Like, how do, you, how do you tell that to a family in Haiti who's struggling to find their next meal? God's plan for you is to be healthy and wealthy. That's his greatest good for your life. Really? 
How do you tell that to somebody in the CAR who the infant mortality rate is through the roof and the average life expectancy is in the 40s? God's greatest plan for you is to live a long, abundantly blessed life. Listen to what Yancey says. It's kind of a long quote, but I'm going to read it. We're almost done. For Job, the battleground of faith involved lost possessions, lost family members, lost health. We, face, we may face different struggles. A career failure, a floundering marriage, sexual orientation, a body that turns people off, not on. At times, at such times, the outer circumstances, the illness, the bank account, the run of bad luck, will seem the real struggle. We may beg God to change those circumstances. If only I were beautiful or handsome, then everything would work out. If only I had more money or at least a job, then I could easily believe in God. But the important battle, as Job has shown, takes place inside us. Will we trust God? Job teaches that at the moment when faith is hardest and least likely, then faith is most needed. So that's the question. Will we trust God? Like even in the dark times, even when we're experiencing pain and suffering, even when our dreams are not coming to pass, even when life turns out really differently than we expected it to or we wanted it to, even when we don't have all of the answers to our why questions, will we trust that he's still good? Will we trust that he still loves us? Will we trust that he's walking with us through our trials even when we may not feel it in the moment? Will we trust that our pain and suffering causes him pain and suffering? A malevolent and evil man, a malevolent man with a knife is a nightmare and will hurt and kill me. A benevolent surgeon with a scalpel can make me well. Right? An evil man with a knife can kill me. A good guy with a scalpel can make me well. My prayer is that each of us would run into the heavenly arms of our Father who loves us. And as it says in Psalm 91, we would dwell in the shelter of the Most High and rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And then we'll say of the Lord, He is my refuge, even in times of trouble. He is my refuge. He is my fortress in whom I trust. That's my prayer for us tonight. As we dig into pain and suffering and our life turns out differently than how we intended, that we fall under his shelter and his strength.